0: I'm Declan O'Connell. Exciting edition this morning, a 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet edition. We're going to discuss Rod Taylor, his, 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 Rod Taylor's new book, 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet, with Rod from Fuzzy Logic here on Two X, and two of the people he features in the book, Shuan Lovett and Olympia ya- Yaga. And it's my great pleasure, as I said, to have in the studio uh, Rod Taylor, author of Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet, and Siwan Lovett and Olympia Yago, another person featured in the book, will be coming in later on. But I'll start by throwing to you, Rod, why did you write this book, about Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet?
1: Yeah, g'day, Declan. Look, there are three things that I find deeply fascinating, and one is people, uh, science, and the environment. And it's become pretty clear to me in recent years that we are in a really serious situation with with climate. And we have, what, 7.8 billion people, roughly, on the planet at the moment. And in the course of the two hours of this show, we'll have an additional roughly 22, maybe 23,000 people on the planet, all doing what people do, consuming uh, and polluting and so on. And I think about a person, a child born today, if if our listener has a child, lives to the age of 80, that'll be the year 2100. What will the world look like in 2100? Uh, 10 billion plus people. Look at the damage we're doing already with less than eight billion people. And we're on track right now to one and a half degrees global warming, which seems pretty much locked in. We're well on the way to two degrees and beyond. And two degrees is not a small number. And uh, it, 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 worries me. it worries me deeply. And so before, oh, concurrently with doing uh, my media career, mm-hmm. I've been an IT person. And in early 2017, I thought, well, what can I do? I don't want to be the old man in the nursing home mm-hmm. saying, I could have this or I could have that. <laughs> I'm going to be the old man in the nursing home saying, I did this (laughs) and I did do that. And so I chucked in the IT thing and Mm. and I thought, well, what can I do? I'm going to do something radical. And my daughter, who's a novelist, Mm. said, Dad, write about people. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, Mm. I should. So my interest in science is well known to uh, XXX listeners that Mm. write for the Canberra Mm. Times and other publications. Uh, But really it's about people. And and what we're facing now is a situation created by people. We don't have a shortage of science. We don't have a shortage of technology. We can fix this problem, but we need people to solve Mm. it. So I set out to write the stories, not just the tragic stories, you know, the poor person in a third world country with a swollen belly because they're not getting enough to eat and their water is is dirty, I wanted to write about the triumphs of what people are doing. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I found 10 people who, who I felt had really engaging and remarkable stories and they show what people can actually achieve and what what is possible when we put our minds to it. And so with that thought, <laughs> I would like to introduce uh, our guest here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know... The situation is dangerous, and only one man can save it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and of course we have with us uh, Dr. Shuan Lovett, who is not a man, and she's not holding a gun, and she's not alone.
0: <laughs> Good. thank you. So,
1: <laughs> thank you,
0: Rod, and Shuan, Your work—you're you, interested in our, in rivers and the importance of of, of water. And uh, where did you get that interest from?
2: Well, I never intended to run um, a river restoration mm. centre. Uh, I actually studied sociology at university. Um, my my background is, is parents were both environmentally aware mm-hmm. and, and um, into agriculture and also environmental sustainability. But for me, it was always the people. And I ended up in a situation where I, where I was offered an opportunity to work um, at Land and Water Resources R&D Corporation, mm-hmm. as it was called then. And it was really working with scientists who were focusing on different river functions. And mm-hmm. it was very functional. It mm-hmm. was, you know, the physical processes or the ecological processes or the hydrological processes. So lots of logicals going on there, lots of logic. Mm-hmm. But it didn't really connect with anything. Mm-hmm. And so I started out by asking questions like, well, why is that important? Mm-hmm. Why do people need to know that? How are you meant to let a landholder know that that science is important and how can we apply it? And I've ended up working in rivers and waterways because they connect us across our great country.
0: Great, and I'm gonna come back and ask you about that in detail in a minute, but Luca Bloom, Water is Life, a song that was inspired by the stand taken by Native Americans in 2016 at Standing Rock, North Dakota, to protect the water and sacred lands from oil pipelines. And we've got in the studio Dr. Shuan Lovett, one of the people featured in Rod Taylor's new book, Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet. And the book links journeys in uh, environmental issues with people. And uh, the, the issue that um, Shuan has been working on is, is river restoration. But if you could give me an example, Shuan, of where you, where you connect that work of river res- restoration with, with, with people, with real real life problems, real life issues
2: Sure, I mean what a, what a fantastic song um, and you know as, as I'm sitting here listening to it I feel really humbled um, that uh, Rod has included me in this book because I never actually set out to be an environmental warrior um, but I kind of like that tag mm-hmm. now um, so I might mm-hmm. stick with it Um, Look, the the River Restoration Centre came about because um, Land and Water Australia was actually abolished and we'd done all this fantastic science and I was really concerned that the science we'd done would get lost because we all know that, you know, legacy sites disappear like a website. But more than that with the incredible networks that we'd formed. And networks are really what drive our society. So we talk a lot about our natural capital in our environmental campaigns and natural capital are our wonderful rivers and our plants and animals and birds. But you have to combine that with our social capital because people are amazing and we tend to hear all the negative things about people. But we're also the solution mm-hmm. and rivers are what connects us. And I really, um, you know, I didn't have this epiphany when I started in this work, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 years ago. But a, a great example of rivers and people coming together was one of my first trips out onto a farm, a sugar cane mm. farm up in Innisfail, and we were developing um, land management guidelines for mm. sugar farmers. And so we were out on a property, and I met a guy called Tom Waters, who was a um, a, a leading leading farmer, mm. and he was a leading farmer because of the work he was doing along his river. And so um, my, my colleague and mentor, Dr. Phil Price was with me at the time. So Tom went to show us his stretch of land alongside the river, which is called a riparian zone. And there were these beautiful trees and they were all standing on their own. They were about five or six metres apart. They were all mown. And as um, Rod describes in the book, it it was like, you know, walking through Windsor Park or a Japanese garden. It was so orderly. Mm. And we could have chosen at that moment to go, you've got this wrong. You have no idea. But we didn't, we just, you know, you you cultivate the relationship, you get to know the person. But I left behind a magazine that we produced. Mm -hmm. And in that magazine, which was called Rip Rap, we had an article about filter strips. So I just left it there. And we met up again the next day and I was bumping along in the ute with Tom going to look at a wetland where the landowner told me there was a crocodile. Anyway, I stayed in the car. Um, But Tom first thing said to me, Shuan, you have a really lovely teeth. (laughs) And I was sort of like, okay, this isn't any manual. There's no manual about this. (laughs) And I said, well, thank you. He said, where did you get them? And I said, well, I I guess I got them from my parents, you know, like, okay, what do you do? So after that sort of uh, opening, he then said, oh, I I read that magazine that you left last night, you know, that that, uh, filter strip article. And I went, oh yeah. And he goes, so um, I'm actually cutting my grass too short. And I said, you are, you actually need to leave it a bit messy. And so He'd got the message. Um, we'd had a connection. It was warm. There was no, you're a bad land manager doing anything wrong, everything wrong. It was more, here's a bit of information you might like to look at, test it with a few people, come back and have a conversation. And Tom has gone on to have, you know, much longer field strips and... I'm sure he's planted more trees and and he's actually been welcomed into a river restoration community rather than being shamed for having done it wrong, which is what we tend to do. Good. Uh,
1: Uh, I just want to pick up on uh, something you said in there, and it kind of taps in also to my uh, slightly mischievous (laughs) uh, introduction to you when I said only one man, because you used the phrase social network, right? Mm. And one of the themes that's come out for me in the book, and by the way, when I started writing it, other than knowing it was about environment and people, I didn't Mm. really know what the themes would be. They Mm. emerged as the book progressed. But one of the key themes in this is about uh, our reliance on each other. Now, as a heroic individual, Mm. you can achieve this much. Mm. But as a strongly networked individual, you can achieve this much. Mm. And the power of the network is enormous. And uh, I heard Al Gore once giving a talk and he said, you know, all the super fast computers aren't a single processor. They're a network of thousands and thousands of them all collaborating. So if you can tap into the energy of somebody else, then you are so far ahead. And maybe a thing we can come back to later, which is uh, another thing that can emerge in the book, is motivation. What Mm -hmm. motivates people? But maybe hold on that one. Mm -hmm. But just before you cut to the music, Mm -hmm. uh, Declan, Mm -hmm. uh, the book is now in the uh, Dimmick's bookshop in Civic. Very, I went in there yesterday, and they were very, was very pleased and very helpful. And they've got a pile of signed copies on the shelf. Good. No, no, it's a very. I've got a fine, handsome, blue-covered edition here. And
0: yes, Dimox, go and go and Dimux, um, fragile planet. And I, you talked about heroes. So he's, everyone's like, it, I think all the people in your book are heroes. But as you talked about, um, about the networks, part of being a hero is helping other heroes to emerge. So everyone is a hero, and we can all be heroes for one day at least. (laughs) And this is the Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet edition of Rebel Chorus on Radio Two X 98.3 FM. And in the studio at the moment, I've got with me the author of that book, Rod Taylor, and I've got one of the people who's featured in it, Shuan Lovett, and we'll be having another one coming in later on. But Shuan, your work is in river restoration. Could you tell us about the particular kind of river restoration work that you're involved here in the in the canberra region itself
2: yeah sure so the australian river restoration center does a whole range of work Um, some of it focuses just on people with leadership and mentoring and and things like that but we also have an on-ground program that's called rivers of carbon and it's called rivers of carbon because the word carbon connects people with the idea of climate and climate change in our drying climate and we found that it's a, um, a way of talking about a program that makes people think, oh, great, I can do something. Um, and so that program's been running now for nine years. And in that time, we've worked with um, over 200 farmers in the region all around mm-hmm. the ACT. And we now actually have work with Water New South Wales, protecting Sydney water catchments, which would you believe extend up as far as Braidwood and Bangundore and across to Goulburn and up to the Abercrombie. So we're now working more in the Southern Tablelands as well. And so those projects uh, all work on a site by site basis with landholders who are keen to do something about, it might be a wetland, it might be a swampy meadow, a creek, a, a river, a stream. And we will go out on site, we'll talk to them, work out what their aspirations are for their river or creek and see that they align with ours. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they do, most of the time they do. And then we work with them to develop a plan of action for their property. And that generally involves fairly simple things like fencing out stock, Mm -hmm. um, then revegetating with plants, we might treat a bit of erosion. So it's site by site, case Mm -hmm. by case, person by person. Mm -hmm. Great.
0: Marvin Gaye wrote that song, um, Mercy, Mercy, Me, The Ecology, quite some time ago. I think it was uh, either the 1960s or the 1970s, and uh, the issues have become probably a lot more um, urgent uh, since then. And But to bring it back to the local issue, I here in um, actually a bit of a story about an Irish artist who was visiting the, uh, performing at the National Folk Festival and she was... Uh, driven driven past the um, uh, past Lake George and the person driving her uh, said pointed out that's Lake George and her response was that's not a dot dot lake because there would really been no water in it uh, and for most of the time that I've lived uh, in Canberra which is quite a long time I've and driven you know going back and forth between Canberra and Sydney you generally don't see water in Lake George so Want to talk about
2: that and and what's been done about that maybe yeah sure i mean the aboriginal name was Wirwa yeah. for for lake george which i think is much nicer mm-hmm. um but it's an amazing um lake and i remember when i first came here actually having water lapping against the edge of the road so that's yeah. gosh 96 97 when i came to canberra um and i actually had a friend who was doing um his PhD thesis on wave action on Lake George or Wirrawa, so you can actually get those, um, get that water across there. But, but that's what's so amazing about Australia. If you actually look at a map of Australia and um, you know punch in drainage lines, you'll see that it's like arteries all across the landscape and we are covered in them um, or Australia is Mm. covered in them just like we are Mm. as human beings. And so that's that whole idea of water is life and the ecology of the river is what makes it healthy. Mm. And with our European land practices, what we've done and we didn't realize we were doing it, but we've cleared away the, the vegetation that filters. We've taken the vegetation away that shades the stream. We've, introduced um, plants and animals that really aren't meant to be here. Um, And it's meant that that ecology and that ecological function has been damaged. And so for a lot of our landholders, and Margie Fitzpatrick is is one of them who's featured in the book with with, uh, the chapter that Rod's talked about, um, the work I'm doing, but Margie really felt very strongly that she wanted to leave her property in a, in a much better state. Um, so in her family, they applied those European land practices, they were too harsh for our fragile mm. um, soils. And so she's gradually working bit by bit on her property and she is an amazing woman she's really inspirational and she talks about really rivers are not just one thing you know Mm. like they've got ecology they've Mm. got hydrology with the water and they've got deep cultural and social significance so one of the things I love about rivers are that they're multidisciplinary mm-hmm. and they have multiple knowledge systems that, that, you know, how we know them, we yeah. know them through touch and sight and smell. Um, we know them in the way they touch us emotionally. And then we also have all that scientific information to bear on how incredible they are, um, and why they're hotspots. We call them for biodiversity mm-hmm. and for functioning in our landscape.
1: Well, um, Joanne, sure. one of the things that I uh, <laughs> I teased you with, uh, and I described this in the book, was well, I showed you a photo of the uh, the concrete spoon drain near a house. Now, Canberra, course, is well, it's an engineering problem, isn't it? Water is a problem to be removed, like traffic, to make it move as fast and as neatly as you possibly can can you maybe give me uh, recount your reaction to that and and what what is it about concrete drains versus a natural waterway
2: well the, the thing about the concrete drain and when you showed me the picture i thought what's he wanting me to say <laughs> here um but look i think it it actually shows the great ingenuity of people yeah. So you know, for us, it water in our cities was a problem to be solved. So the problem was, let's build a drain, let's make it really solid and um, unpermeable, and let's get that water away as fast as possible. Yeah. Uh, and we actually know that when that actually happens in a landscape, what happens then is that the faster we make the water move, the narrower and more incised, as we call it, so it's so narrower, and it just sort of deep dig digs digs deeper and deeper and deeper into the into our soils um, it actually causes more and more erosion and in the case of your beautiful drain um what happens there is that it gets incredibly hot because it's got nothing over it so you get these lovely slimy bits of algae um along them and because algae loves hot conditions with with no shade so um What is great about Canberra though, and it's one of the reasons I I love living here, is that we're now starting to break up those concrete drains and and you'll see many examples of the wetlands that are going in um, around Canberra. And they're being really wholeheartedly embraced by the community as places to gather, but they also do amazing things for water quality and creating those ecological hotspots, if you like, within a city, those carbon sinks as well. Mm
1: Yeah, I, I feel a little uh, sad every time I look at that drain. And you mentioned the word permeability mm. there. So the water is cut off from the groundwater, from the soil. And I didn't realize mm. the temperature of the water goes up as well. Mm. And it's a sad, a sad, lifeless thing, those drains. But uh, the good news, Shuan, as you said, is there's these fantastic projects in Canberra where we realize some of our mistakes. and. They're doing really good work. Kev Carmody there uh, with Midnight Oil, Wind is in My Heart. And
0: Kev Carmody, he's got a new album out. It's the 2020 edition of Cannot Buy My Soul. Cannot Buy My Soul first came out in 2007 and had two CDs. On one of them, it was cover versions of Kev Carmody songs and on the second CD it was Kev Carmody himself singing those same songs. The 2020 edition ad- adds a third CD into the package and it's... Um, Newer versions of newer cover versions of Kev comedy songs, and Kev from including from some more contemporary artists that have emerged since 2007, and of course Kev himself singing. And there he was joining um, Midnight Oil on their new album. It's been uh, been some really big albums this year. In the midst of uh, particularly Australian albums, in the midst of. Coronavirus. We, we've got a Midnight Oil album. We've got a Kev Carmody album. Vicar and Linda Bull put out two albums, and uh, we featured all those albums here on Rebel Chorus. But the new Midnight Oil album is called The Macarata Project, and essentially in each of the tracks, they collaborate with Indigenous artists. And uh, there's a, there's a Macarata Project concert, and it's coming to Canberra on 17th of March, known in my home country as St. Patrick's Day. But here it's... Uh, Macarada Project Day here in Canberra on the 17th of March. And I had an interview with uh, Kev uh, to uh, on that show, kind of by my sole edition of Rebel Chorus, featuring his new album. And we talked about his long history campaigning for Indigenous rights and how sometimes on issues like um, deaths in custody, it seems as if he was having to refight the same battles over and over again. And at the end of the interview, I asked him about, um, like, his hopes for the future and the hope that in you know that we don't have to keep fighting uh, battles about those issues that uh, deaths and custody stop uh, and more broadly what is the importance of hope and uh, we go to that uh, we'll go to that interview with kev now and then we'll come back to the discussion here in the studio with Rod Taylor and Shuan Lovett, and we talk about the importance of hope in a fragile planet which is important as it is for Indigenous right and rights, and those two issues are often linked as well, anyway. Now, Kevin, can I ask you a bit about, we're near the end now, can I ask you a bit about your hopes for the future? Like, we talked about oh. having to protest for 30 years, lots of things still to protest, but looking forward, I mean, there's the statement from the heart, There's what would you like, to, you know, looking forward, what can you can you point us in, point us in a direction that's hopeful? <laughs> oh, we've got to have, yeah, that's it.
3: That's the big one, and you put your finger on it. We've got to have hope. We've got to have positivity. Mm. And collectively, we we can do so much as long as we act as a collective. And of course, nowadays, it's different from the old days when you had to be up on a telephone or you had to go and see somebody and paint up a placard and get out in the street and, you know, then find everything, especially the police. And in these days, they've got instant contact with the, um, Internet, mm-hmm. and it can be doable now. We we, mm-hmm. we can we, we can be part of the, the uh, you know the the mm-hmm. me too movement. We can be part of the um, you know black lives mm-hmm. matter movement. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a you know there's a
0: so much Kev that that's that's it's nice to have that hope and 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 look look look, look oh through. we'll
3: get there we'll get there because we are the people <laughs> that's right we can ch- we can change democracy we can make it our people's democracy instead of globalized corporations democracy
0: good one we,
3: we, we can make it a, a, the people's democracy
0: so that's uh very interesting and very literally hopeful from Kev Harmedy and and Rod uh, and, and Shuan, looking at the book um, I mean it seems to me that that's a, a theme that's coming through from it because in each of, and you talked Rod, at the start of the show about not wanting to be the person in the in the old person's home shouting at the wall about how the, the world was going to rack and ruin and you could have done something about it and you didn't. Um, I think a sense of hope probably inspires each of the ten journeys. So maybe if I ask you about that Rod in, in a general sense and then maybe I ask you, Shuan, about it in, in relation to your particular work in, in river restoration. You know, can we often, because, I mean, I guess discussions of the environment and environmental issues and climate change, and they're often, and quite in, rightly in some ways, presented in sort of gloom and doom and danger. And there is a lot of danger and there's a lot that we have to do about it. But on the other hand, I think if we're going to do something about it, hope is important as well. We're, Rod, might ask you first about that.
1: Yes, uh, it's a theme that emerged. It's a theme that emerged uh, as I was getting towards the end of the book. And I didn't really appreciate this would happen, but... uh, I interviewed uh, Shuan for her chapter and we, I think we talked about things like this. Mm-hmm. And when I look at the, the news and I see photos of what's happening around the world, I look at the construction cranes marching across Canberra uh, for a relentlessly growing city. And I personally feel, if I'm vulnerable, really depressed. Mm-hmm. I, I seriously do mm-hmm. feel depressed about it but I am by nature an optimistic person and, uh, and I'm a problem solver. I like solving problems, so I tackle this thing of well, what can I do about it? And so to write the book, well, I, I've interviewed uh, at my last count roughly 600 people, mm-hmm. I think, mm. and uh, what is it about the people that gives me some kind of inspiration but, but on, on the question of hope, I, I was reading a really interesting book a few weeks ago about the Batavia wreck mm-hmm. and, and the ships from Amsterdam used to sail across uh, down south and then they would keep heading uh, east and then they'd... Because they didn't know their longitude properly, mm-hmm. they would bump into the coast and then they would sink. It was pretty terrible, but the Batavia... As, as most of us you know, hit the Abrolhos Islands, and what happened then is just horrendous. But there was a passage in that book that really, really struck me. So what, what happened was the, the ship's uh, commander uh, decided that they, he had to go north, and he piled as many people as he could into a longboat, and they headed up towards the Java uh, settlement where the Dutch East India Company were, had a, an outpost which is another story in <laughs> itself. But they they had too many people on this boat. And the author says that research shows that sailors in a desperate situation who feel they have no hope fail more often, whereas people who feel that they do have some hope are more likely to survive. And there's real research that backs this up. And now... Uh, Clive Hamilton, who is also in Joanne's uh, chapter, and he used the phrase a glossy hope. Mm-hmm. So and by that he's referring to this, like, oh well, we'll just have a few solar panels, a few wind farms, and everything will be just peachy. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it won't be. Not it's just not that easy. I mean, we definitely need those things, right? So what we need is a hope that's grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you you said we feel we watch the television, we see the news that it's very pessimistic. Well, uh, yeah, it's pessimistic, but what can we do rather than just surrender to Mm -hmm. despair and say, look, we're screwed? Mm -hmm. And there's this phrase that I heard called disaster euphoria. Mm -hmm. And and in disaster euphoria, people just say, well, we're screwed, so we'll just party. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. Uh, so this, this means a huge amount to me. Uh, mm. And if there's nothing else that a person gets from reading this book, I hope this one yeah. is one that comes through. Yeah.
0: Well, I think each of, the, each of the 10 journeys that show, show hope, they show, they show somebody doing something about these issues.
1: Well, that's much, right, yeah. because one, one, on one course, you, you might say, well, we, we're screwed, mm. Uh, we, you know we can try we're screwed we definitely fail if we mm. don't even try mm. Mm. so sure i'll throw it to you from your
0: experience because uh, i think yours is a story for yours is a story of restoration of rivers mm. they're restored so would you like to reflect on hope and the importance thereof?
2: yeah sure i mean you know i think that uh human beings are quintessentially hopeful mm-hmm. uh and it's part of being human And we see communities that are resilient, for that oft-used word at the moment. Those communities that are able to cope and to continue on and often go into transformative change rather than just maintain the status quo are those that are really they don't feel that they can do anything. And I think that that's what's really important about the work that we do is to say you can do something. And it doesn't matter if it's just a few metres of creek, or it's, pre- or it's going to a National Tree Day and putting a tree in. You are doing something. And so for me, uh, I look local because I feel that local is where I can actually make a difference. And it makes me feel good about what I'm doing, which is really important. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel good about what you're doing, then you don't keep doing it. it um, and, you know, the movement grows. So as I said, Rivers of Carbon is now all the way across the southern Tablelands. And it just started with one small project outside the ACT. So... Hope begets more
1: hope. It does. Yeah, and you use a word in there, uh, I think, you effect on community and, and mm-hmm. our connectedness. But also, Shuan, you said you maybe we just do a small bit of the river, just a few metres of the river. And someone listening might say, well, look, I, I can't write a book. I, I can't create uh, 350.org. I can't create mm-hmm. one of these. I, I'm just not that kind of person. And so, you know, like, what good am I? Well, actually, we are all good in our own ways. And, and the thing, I think, is we have to find something that connects with, with our, our inner being, right? I know that sounds a bit fluffy, mm-hmm. for, especially for mm-hmm. a guy who calls himself a science mm-hmm. writer. But uh, uh, for me, I, I connect with people's stories. so I love interviewing people on Fuzzy Logic mm-hmm. because I love hearing the passion that people have about what they do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able to convert that into this book. But for someone listening, okay, you're not going to do that, maybe. Mm. But there's something you can do, and it could be, maybe just recycling plastic or talking to your neighbours, sharing your thoughts, and and that shared sense of purpose. I think that's kind of core to it. Would you say, Sharon? Uh-huh.
2: Totally. And, you know, you can go back to good old Maslow's hierarchy of Mm -hmm. needs. You know, food, shelter, when we've got those covered, the next one up is belonging. Mm -hmm. And we're a social species. We want to feel like we belong. We want Mm -hmm. to feel like we're part of something bigger. And I think that that's where the the sorts of things that we talk about through Rivers of Carbon or through, you know, a member of a choir, I feel like Mm -hmm. I belong. I feel I'm important. I'm part of something bigger. And that's what all of us want is that sense of belonging and a sense of and and also then being able to do something. Humans hate not being able to act. Mm-hmm. Um that's what leads to hopelessness.
1: Yes, there's uh research that shows a depressed rat I'm using doing the finger waving uh quote mm-hmm. scare, thing quotes.
2: Here. Uh, <laughs> scare quotes. <coughs> yeah that's
1: right. Yeah, it'll just hang placidly because it's it's surrendered. it is surrendered. Mm-hmm. It has no no feeling and so it just goes like well I've got. I'm done. Mm. I'm done. Mm. So, mm. <laughs>
2: that's right. Yep. And and we know, you know, um, when people get into situations where they're feeling really depressed and low, that it's just that that constant friend that. That's somebody coming to connect with them to talk to them even when they don't feel like they want to do that and you know I've had moments of anxiety in my past as well and and future I'm sure because it's not going to go away but that's when I reach out to a few trusted friends and and start to talk and connect and go okay it's all right I can I can do this
1: it's that feeling of powerless that we have to stop and mm-hmm. just quickly, since we're talking about community, so this book has got my name on the cover. It says here, <laughs> Rod, yeah, yeah. Oh, now endemics, by the way. Signed copies, I have to give that a plug. Fair but enough. to produce this book, I did a little calculation a couple of weeks ago. There are 24 people who are deeply involved, and I'm not joking, mm-hmm. 24 people who are deeply involved in producing this book. So while I'm the person who, who brought it together, so first of all, we had the 10 people, and mm-hmm. Margie Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. we talked about, but I had two people doing substantive edits, mm-hmm. Rebecca Colvin and Madeline Parker, and they really motivated me. They say, Rod, look, you know, I love your chapter. Mm-hmm. This is fantastic, but you could fix this. Mm-hmm. And they kept me going. My sister and my mum were the grammar gorillas, fixed, <laughs> fixed up my mangled sentence, my, and I'm now having a, a, a phobia about commas. And uh, Savannah McGurk, right? Now I've met Savannah twice, once at a Whatever, mm. an, an event or whatever, and I got chatting to her at a public speak by a guy named Professor Mark Reed, who talks about the relevance of making your scientific research uh, mm. impactful, mm. the term he uses, right? And he gave a terrific talk, a very heartfelt, very uh, revealing talk about himself and, and his work. And uh, and I was chatting to Savannah after, and I, and I said, oh, I've got this book, and she said, Oh, send me the manuscript. And then, so I did, she was on holidays in London, I kid you not, sending me edits. (laughs) And she said, uh, uh, at the same time, uh, look, you should talk to Mark, because Mark, you know, he's like this fantastic visiting professor from Leeds University. And so, oh yeah, right, right. So I went and said, good day, Mark. And I introduced myself, hi, I'm Rod, I got this book. You never heard of me, never heard of the book. And he said, yeah, send me your manuscript. Mm -hmm. And then he sent me back these comments and he said, look, you could improve it by doing this. Anyway, I'm rambling, but I get excited because Mm -hmm. that shows what happens when people have a shared purpose. What we can achieve together is just amazing. Mm -hmm.
0: And you can multiply that for it. So that's for yourself. Producing the book and all of the people who helped you produce the book, but for each of the journeys of the ten journeys, you multiply mm-hmm. by maybe a hundred people for each. Yep. In terms of the activities that they're in, like activities mm-hmm. that they're involved in, so we get in get into the thousands and exploring ten journeys on a fragile fragile planet in Australia. And this is the uh, ten journeys on a fragile planet edition of Rebel Chorus on Radio 2XX. We're looking at and talking about. Rod Taylor's new book, Ten Journeys on a Fragile Planet. And we've got uh, two of the people featured in the book here in the studio with us, uh, Shiwan Lovett and Olympia Yager. And it's kind of changed over time where I'm going to thank Shiwan uh, Thank you very much for coming in here It's been an absolute today.
2: pleasure. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Good. Well, I've enjoyed it very much too myself. And that's a great chapter in the book to read about your work on river restoration. And another great chapter to read in the book is about Olympia, Yager, but Olympia, about your work in relation to... I think I might describe it as reduction in food waste. And can I start by asking you about why are maggots important? That's something that once I read the blurb of Rod's book, it kind of intrigued me a bit because I don't know the answer myself. (laughs) I I always thought they're yucky things that you try to avoid as much as possible, you know.
4: Well, that's just leftover culture stuff Mm -hmm. when we didn't have fridges and ways to keep Mm -hmm. our homes clean. Um, But maggots are important in food waste conversations because we need to valorise our waste. Streams to create opportunities to build protein, um, and maggots can manage food waste fast, effectively, hygienically, and create high-value protein that in, uh, other livestock want to eat. Mm-hmm. So, it's a good way to do some upcycling of a very difficult waste stream to manage.
0: And how do you like? How do you organise this with farmers or
4: with organised? We created the capability to farm insects in a decentralised way, which has created um, an opportunity to bring a new product to market or a new commodity, essentially, to the market. So we we work with um, different producers of protein products, so dog food suppliers and feed producers, to for that product to go out into market. Essentially, we create a commodity. hmm
0: Fantastic. Well, we've we'll got a music now. We've got a song which I think uh, fits fits the theme. It's again from Luca Bloom. We heard it, we heard him earlier singing a Water Is Life. This is a song called Frugalisto, and I think it's about a project in Ireland. I think it's in County Clare on the west coast of Ireland, where somebody's there is, is thinking about uh, essentially about creating less waste so and f- more frugal lifestyle frugalisto the title track on his frugalisto album and he's asking some very good questions how about a lighter footprint under the silvery moon when is enough stuff so olympia let's come to to food waste and maybe a little bit if you could tell me a little bit more about how you've got a business guterra here in canberra if you could explain a bit more how how it works in relation
4: to Food waste. Sure. So initially on just a very basic level, we um, accept food waste and manage it as a fee for service. So mm-hmm. people who um, create food waste, so office buildings, homes, um, mm-hmm. businesses, corporations, co- hotels, hospitals, um, collect their food waste and we we accept it and then we manage it. We manage it using insects. Mm-hmm. So we macerate it and treat it and then the insects are fed the food waste and they consume it. And we've designed technology to do that in a scalable, modular way that creates a little bit more agility to the logistics of managing food waste. So we're essentially a tech company that deploys maggots to get uh, robots to get maggots to do a job. And where does, if I could ask a really dumb question, where (laughs) does it go then after that? So once the insects have finished consuming the food waste, they are, uh, which is about ten to. 12-day process um, then you have really fat and healthy maggots and you have large numbers of maggot manure and both of those products are able to be used as um, value add into farming so you've got a manure that can be used as a fertilizer and you've got a maggot that can be used as livestock feed. very ingenious I have to say I
0: go to some music and I come back to another question about the scale of the problem in relation to food waste in Australia. And in the studio with me I've got Rod Taylor who wrote uh, 10 Journeys on a Fragile Planet and Olympia Yager whose journey is one of the 10. And your journey is about uh, reduction, uh, Olympia about reduction in food waste and we talked about the maggots and the importance of the maggots. Is it a particular kind of maggot that is good at this job of reprocessing (laughs) food waste. Absolutely.
4: Um, So the champion of the food waste story in the world right now is the black soldier fly. Um, And the reason being because this particular species of fly eats aerobically as a larva and so you don't end up with a sort of great environment for pathogens because it's been the, the substrate's been aerated and then secondly as a fly in that, that stage of its life cycle the insect is a non-pest non-vector mm-hmm. um, species so mm-hmm. it doesn't eat as a fly and it can't it, it cannot manifest into a pest so um, it's quite a good species of fly to be domesticating. So was this known about for a long time or was it is it
0: you guys discovered it or
4: No no so this is using insects as food has been around for centuries, mm-hmm. more than centuries, mm-hmm. you know, and Australia has a, our Indigenous peoples have an incredible history of using insects as food. Um, farming black soldier flies is not new. Mm-hmm. What's new is how GoTerra thinks about farming insects and mm-hmm. using insects to do jobs mm-hmm. in the management of difficult waste streams. That's that's what's different. And then
0: you keep making me think of other things. Where do you get a supply of them? How do you, how do you? Oh, you, you must need... make
4: them yourself. No, no. But but if
0: you need heaps of – how do you where, – where do they come from? Yeah,
4: you have to legitimately make them yourself. Okay. So we found um, – our. well, I found my first black soldier fly in my compost bin mm-hmm. in my backyard in Isaacs mm-hmm. and, um, and I had to grow the colony from there. So that you can't import domesticated insect species mm-hmm. to Australia. You must create your own here in the country.
1: Now, Olympia, when you were telling me your story, uh, can we just go back in your life a bit to the maggots? Because when you were in the US, right, you had this really amazing episode where you had maggots in your compost bin and the dog poo and everything. Can you kind of recount (laughs) that? Yeah,
4: it's it's this sort of irony of where I find myself today. You started in sheep and so maggots were just, no, you didn't Mm. want maggots anywhere and then um, in the US I was doing sort of this sustainable garden and we were composting our dog manure and I remember lifting the lid up to put some new manure in and here's <laughs> just it was just writhing with this weird lava and I was like oh my god and I was trying to kill it and I couldn't kill them and um and it turned out they were black soldier fly and we and the you irony can't kill them
0: because they're soldier flies that's why they're soldiers well I
4: couldn't kill them at the time just because we had such a robust colony going in that compost bin but the irony is that you know, very short amount of time later, I was trying really hard to get them to live and they wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Karma. That's Palmer. exactly right. Yeah.
0: Good. We got to, another you know, song from Shane Howard, uh, his best known song from his Goanna Day, well, second best known song, I think, from his Goanna Day, Solid Rock would be the best one known. But this is an anthem for the environmental movement in the early 1980s in Australia, Let the Franklin Fly. And we're... Talking about journeys on a fragile planet here in the studio of Radio Two Double X. My guests Taylor and Olympia Yager. Olympia, can I ask you about how you know we've talked about about your your, your um, business, Guterra. We've talked about the soldier fly maggots and their importance in uh, processing food waste. Maybe I could ask you how. You got involved in, or inspired to get involved in that whole business in terms of, yeah, uh, wanting did, was it you wanted to do something about food waste, or was there some? No, how did you get no, far into far less it? inspiring?
4: Yeah. I, I just wanted to farm. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be a farmer, um, go back to farming, um, and the challenge was that the cost of feed in any farming enterprise is about 70% of the operating expenses. Mm-hmm. And so what if that's true, then commodity prices will continue to challenge your business's bottom line. And so I was looking for an alternate commodity that could stabilise that proposition somewhat, and I found insects. And so at first it was all just about trying to f- create insects to make a feed so that I could farm. So it was sort of like a means to an end Um the longer I tried to get them to live <laughs> and the more I t- sort of once I was successful at that and you you sort of build that capability you realize that you're farming anyway so it, it, it started off wanting to farm conventionally and ended up realizing that we could create a new farming system with a new kind of animal that sort of turns existing farming practices and logistic challenges on its head mm-hmm. so that's re- that's sort of the journey. Fantastic,
0: uh, Olympia. You've been telling me about uh, you, how you maggots reprocess food waste. I just I am interested in the kind of broad issue in terms of food waste. I mean, I have read, I can't remember the exact statistics, but I have read that you know a lot of us, in terms of the stuff we buy to Saturday, a lot of us will probably be going shopping at some stage today. Uh, Buying food and probably the food will be in plastic packaging, which is a separate issue, or a lot of it might be. But I'm just—I have read that a lot of food just goes from supermarket to fridge to bin Mm. or to uh, to yeah, basically that's the journey it has. So, and obviously your business is doing something about that. But um, do you want to talk about it as a social issue beyond just you know, beyond your own? business as a contemporary social issue yeah
4: yeah so developed nations by and large waste one in every five bags of groceries they buy Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a a symptom of our privilege Mm -hmm. we can buy food when we like we can get it when we want we can get it in volumes that is easy to disregard Um, you see very little Um, of that fridge waste in developing countries because the access to food is a lot different. I think what we're seeing as we continue particularly this year which everyone sort of has said was really difficult and we wish it was over but I've kind of welcomed it in a way Mm -hmm. um, because the challenges we've had to endure in rapid succession has allowed sort of no sense of returning to normal. Mm -hmm. I think we all accept that that's Mm -hmm. gone and it it's really apparent that we're starting to see a stronger push for people to start to change things that are within their reach, Mm. um, which are accessible to their own control. And so I think what we're, we're seeing is that food waste in its status today, which is that stuff that just never gets used, it's bought from convenience, is starting to go away. Mm. And when, when we manage waste for clients, you know, back of house, you know, chefs do better mm. and so their waste mm. goes down. Uh, hotels do better, mm. hospitals do better, um, supermarkets do better because mm. they can see the volume that's not getting used mm. and, and that data is so important to making decisions. Mm. Now that we have that impetus, I believe in the next five years, you'll actually see reductions of that mm.
2: that
4: that statistic. You won't see one in every five mm. bags being wasted. But I think we've got to keep the pressure up, um, particularly in countries like ours that are privileged where the pressure to make change um, in and create some sense of inconvenience can be um, difficult to get motivation for so um i think we're going to see a a dramatic shift um as we all start to be more connected to our food and where it comes from and and honoring the effort it takes and the resources it takes Mm. to make it right we're coming to the end of our
0: 10 journeys on a fragile planet edition of uh, rebel chorus this morning thank you olympia for explaining about uh the role of maggots in reprocessing food waste and about your business and about the broader social issues. Thank, Thank you very you. much.
4: It's been lovely to be here. Thank you. And I will give
0: the last word to the author, uh, Rod Taylor. We've explored two of the 10 journeys Uh on the Fragile Planet. But there are eight others, and in, I think you've got about
1: three minutes to go through the <laughs> eight other stories. Yeah, go yes. for it. Go your, for your it. Your time starts Go for it, now. yeah. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to uh, have uh, Sharan Lovett and uh, Olympia Yaga on the show today. As you mentioned, uh, Declan, there mm. are a bunch of other people mm. in the book as well. So we've got uh, Simon Sheik, who was a guy who took Get Up from being a small backwater organisation into the political force that it is now and he's now running an organization or he he created a a, an ethical superannuation fund called future super which is uh, disrupting the uh, superannuation uh, business and getting them to put money in away from fossil fuels and things like that Uh, we have uh, professor andrew blakers and he's one of the pioneers behind uh, solar technology 70% of all panels produced now use technology he developed with Professor Martin Green. So he's a real champion. Uh, Charlie Prell, a fifth-generation sheep farmer out at Gundaringa, the Crookwell. And uh, his story is amazing. And he's now behind uh, Farmers for Climate Action, the Australian Wind Alliance. And in the book, I tell the story of uh, how... the the toxic journey that he had to go through, he and his wife, Chris, to get the turbines on his property. I'm running out of time. (laughs) Uh, Just quickly, uh, Leonard Cohen, a guy, yes. (laughs) We had him. (laughs) Yeah, not that one, but but he he created a tree, uh, a carbon farming initiative, a Liberal National Party, federal politician, would you believe, Mm -hmm. Liberal Party from South Australia. She's a uh, Susan Jeans. She's a a champion for renewable energy. Inez uh, Schuk, who's now in uh, Vienna, and she's created a game. I was on the phone to her f- from Vienna uh, last week, uh, a game to teach kids about how climate works. Just amazing. Uh, Professor Kate Orty, who's former ACT Environment Commissioner, and what happened to her uh, as uh, the Victorian Environment Commissioner was just amazing, and her heritage with Aboriginal people. I wish we had time to talk about oh. Aboriginal people in the show today, but we, mm. we don't. Uh, uh, another famous name, Monica Oliphant. She was one of the people who created the first laser in Australia, and she's been a champion for renewable energy in Australia. And, of course, Joanne Lovett, we've had, and uh, that's primarily it. That was it. Thank you. And you got 20 seconds to spare. That is oh. an
0: experienced radio presenter, Rod.
1: And, and that's
0: up. it. And I've got... you got one more thing to say. I'm
1: oh, just going to say, available now, yep. signed copies, uh, Dimmock's Bookshop here in Civic, and I'm going to get them into the other shops around Canberra very you soon. You took the words right out of my
0: mouth to quote meatloaf, meatloaf. And that's it from our Rebel course uh, this morning, and it, 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 the book is in Dimmock's shop. would we'll make a good Christmas present for oh, friends yeah. that are interested in environmental issues, friends you think should be more interested in environmental issues, whatever and um, Christmas season. We will go out though with a song, a red gum song from the 1970s, sung by the Fagans, it's called In the Long Run.